When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Two Steves and a Metcalf edition. It's Wednesday, November 8th, 2017. On today's show, we will talk about Lady Bird, the solo directorial debut of the actress Greta Gerwig. It's about the relationship between a middle-aged nurse and her teenage daughter in the early 2000s, and it stars Shearsha Ronan and Laurie Metcalf. And then we will discuss Alias Grace, the new Netflix miniseries that's based on a Margaret Atwood historical fiction novel of the same name and is executive produced and written by Sarah Polly. This new miniseries was originally broadcast on Canadian TV. It's now found its way to our screens in the U.S., and we will discuss. And lastly, Rolling Stone, the venerable rock and roll magazine, turns 50 this year. There's a new biography of its founder, Jan Wenner, and there's also a new documentary on HBO about the legacy of the magazine. We'll discuss with Slate's senior writer, Seth Stevenson, and with June Thomas, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts and one of the co-hosts of the Double X Podcast. Hello, June. Dana. Seth. Hello, Dana. Dana, before we start, I couldn't help noticing that the I think the it wasn't the last time I was on the Culture Gabfest, but I was really struck as I um, you know, got my voting information together this morning that this time last year, which is to say on election day, I came in and I subbed in for Julia, who was busy supervising a Slate's election coverage. And that was the last innocent day, you know. That, that was, was the last day of our youth. Yeah. The before times. Yeah. Before times. <laughs> and this is the last day before the one year anniversary, right? Like we're all going to get some sort of horrible PTSD attack at midnight tonight. Something's going to happen. Brutal I was covering times. the uh, Trump election victory night party at the Midtown Hilton. Wow. One of the darkest hours of my life. <laughs> oh, God. Surrounded by celebrants. That Surrounded had to be by people really in hard. pinstripe suits and red Make America Great Again hats and a giant cake in the shape of Trump's head. Oh. Wow. Wow. What I'll we've been through forget. since then. But you, you started right at the apex of, of agony. All right. Lady Bird is the title of the movie, and it's also the self-given nickname of Christina McPherson, played by Shearsha Ronan, who's an adventurous and outspoken teenager trying to define herself in Sacramento in the early 2000s. She's in constant conflict with her mother, who's played by Laurie Metcalf. This is Greta Gerwig's directorial debut. She's co-directed a movie before, but this is her first solo outing. And it's getting tons of critical praise. Last time I looked, it was at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and a lot of early awards buzz for its script and its performances. Unfortunately, there are no clips available, but let's listen to a bit from the trailer from Lady Bird. I hate California. I want to go to the East Coast. I want to go where culture is, like How New in the York. World did I raise such or at least snow. Connecticut or New Hampshire, where writers live in the woods. Get into those schools anyway. 
Mom, you should just go to City College. You know, with your work ethic, just go to City College and then to jail and then back to City College and then maybe you'd learn to pull yourself up and not expect everybody to do everything. Lady Bird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Lady Bird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. What she did was very baller. All right. Even though that's just a trailer clip, I think it gives some idea of the kind of sprightly dialogue and the um, the mood of this movie. So I want to get reactions from both of you. Um, just quickly off the top, love, hate, would send people to or not. Seth? Uh, very sweet. Very sweet sensibility. Very generous spirit. Bops along. Enjoyed. The performances are amazing. I will say, however, the media blitz had me ready for like a life-altering film. And I just thought it was a really good, really cute high school movie. The New York Times called it perfect. I would not go that far. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Both the last sentence of the Times review by A.O. Scott and the last sentence of David Edelstein's review in New York Magazine used the word perfect and formulated the idea. I think Edelstein just says the ending is perfect and A.O. Scott says the whole movie. But yes, this movie has been, I agree, a little bit overpraised. I think it's a lovely, sweet coming-of-age movie. There's nothing about it I would really change. But it's kind of familiar territory, and I don't quite understand why it's being hailed like it's the 400 blows of 2017. June, what about you? Well, I had not really seen any of the critical uh, acclaim. I didn't read your review until after I'd seen it. And I so I and I don't typically care for the kind of Gerwigian type movie. Like, I don't hate them or anything. It just doesn't really do it for me. What's a Gerwigian type well, movie? Well, you know, Since like a, a Joe, well, but like the kind of movie that she typically acts in. Right. The you mumblecore. Know, mumblecore. Which, a word that I have sworn never to put in writing in the pages of Slate magazine, by the way, and I stick by that. For pledge. which we thank you. Uh, or even, you know, the the movies that she's done with Noah Baumbach, like they're not my favorite Noah Baumbach, but, you know, just, and I know that's unfair. And it's like I said, not a hatred or anything, just not like, eh, it's not my thing. And I was super charmed. But I think the key, as the key in all of life is to go in with low expectations or not have overblown expectations. And yeah. I, I, I really liked it. And I was just, I, and the portrayal of the mother-daughter relationship particularly hit me because her mother is just like my mother. Uh, and so it, I was just... That must of, have been a difficult teenagehood. <laughs> <laughs> so so I was really, really like vibing on that. Yeah, I think I agreed. This, this was originally called Mothers and Daughters, apparently, the uh, the script. And it really does focus. I think the best scenes by far are yeah. the scenes between Laurie Metcalf and Shirsha Ronan. And there's lots of them. But there's a lot else going on, too. There's two romantic relationships that are pursued in her senior year of high school. There's a friendship betrayal yeah. and reconciliation. There's what else is going on there? Her father's depression. Yeah. I mean, and financial concerns, which she is aware of, but like all teenagers of that age, oblivious to and and, and trying to rise above. I think that is a strong point of the movie, too, actually, yeah. is that it places itself in in it, it, it takes place in a particular economic and financial history as well as a cultural history. It's not it, it doesn't alienate its concerns from the concerns of the wider world. Yeah. And I think, as you pointed out in your movie, uh, Dana, in the, my review, sorry, <laughs> my movie, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be great if I made little movies to go with each movie. As you pointed out in your review, Dana, um, there were certain things. There are certain beats that are hit that are familiar high school movie beats, and yet nothing is overemphasized. There's no like thumb in your eye, finger on whatever it is, whatever anatomical analogy we're going to use. You know, there's no evil people. There's no horrible betrayals. There's no cads. There's like it's a familiar movie that's about kind of nice people trying to rub along, trying to trying to make it, trying to 
express themselves and, and grow up. And similarly, I thought the portrayal of like a squeezed middle family, they're not in the worst situation. The family's together in this actually super admirable way, really, you know, aspirational way. They just are really tight on money and they're having really, you know, very real financial problems. But they, you know, it's not overplayed. It's it's real and it's relatable, but it's not like, you know, they're not literally living in a cardboard box by the end or anything like that, that I actually think some movies might be tempted to fall into. Yeah, that's true. You keep sort of, just because every movie has to have its catastrophe, you keep waiting for someone to die or become yeah. homeless or get pregnant or something like that. And I mean, sorry for the spoilers, but or the non, non-event spoilers, but none of those things happen. And so the, the smallness of scale is something to appreciate about it. Dina, you mentioned it feel, felt a little like... Um familiar territory. And the movie it really reminded me of was Pretty in Pink, the Molly Ringwald movie written by John Hughes in the 80s. And again, also it's, class conscious. It's, it's, it's a senior, a high school senior girl and who comes from a working class family and she's got sort of a sad sack dad. She even has to sew a pink dress. R.I.P. Harry Dean Stanton. We yeah. Love you. She even has to sew a pink dress just like Lady Bird does. Um, but in this movie felt like that movie in some ways, but it felt a, more from a female perspective, written from a female perspective, and B, it just felt a little more lived in and and, and a lot more generous to its characters. So every, even the bad characters, like the bad boyfriend yeah. has a dad dying of cancer, or like the, the, the ditzy, snobby girl is actually an AP calculus. Um, you know, everyone has a backstory. Like the, the, the priest who directs the musical is also in depression and later beats with Laurie Metcalf to talk about his depression. So I, I, I love the way it took care to make sure every single character felt a little bit rounded, felt a little bit lived in. But the, the, the best part of it by far for me was really the performances of Laurie Metcalf. And then the other revelation for me was Beanie Feldstein, who oh, plays Julie, the best friend, the, the best friend who gets kind of jilted for the snobby rich girl later in the movie. I just thought she just has such a delightful presence. I would like to watch a Beanie Feldstein, a Julie movie. Yeah. Um, would, be my, would be my pick as a spinoff. Yeah. Isn't yeah. Beanie Feldstein a TV personality, June? Isn't she on some show? We She's Jonah Hill's sister. Um, and in real she, life? In real life. Oh, my. Yeah, no, in the movie. The Jonah <laughs> Hill, no, she's in real life. She's Jonah Hill's sister. Um, she hasn't done a ton of stuff, but she has been. She was in um, Neighbors 2. <laughs> she was one of the sorority sisters in Neighbors 2. Um, but I just thought she was so fun in this. Yeah, and again, she's someone who could have been so overplayed. And you, you almost, part of the enjoyment is knowing how that character would have been just tortured and mistreated in most other movies. Um, she is right because she's kind of a plain, overweight girl, yeah. right? And she's, she's but she's not. But she's not seen as the outcast. No, of the school. and she's also she's sad. She suffers. It's not like she's oblivious to what's going on. She, you know, she she when things go wrong for her, she feels hurt. But you know, life goes on. I will say, and I don't want to spoil too much, so I won't get into it. But I thought her reconciliation after their break with Lady Bird was a little bit too easy, and did something that the rest of the movie didn't do with that character, which was put her in the position of someone who, who I don't know, who needed her friend more than her friend needed her. I mean, couldn't she have one day of being annoyed that she had been blown off for so yeah. long? Yeah, and and I have to say that the, there's another like I don't again not to spoil, but. The thing, the ending, which uh, apparently was called perfect by some critics, I didn't, I also felt a little too pat to me. Um, so, yeah, the, the, there are some reconciliations that felt just a little bit unearned, but also 
that please you as a, as a viewer? What do we think of Greta Gerwig, the emerging auteur? We, you know, I, I sort of saw this film as a prequel to Frances Ha, which she co-wrote with Noah Baumbach. And you could see this character of Lady Bird, you know, later becoming Frances Ha, Frances Halloran, going to New York. And because and, and, in that movie, in Frances Ha... Frances Ha goes back to Sacramento to spend some time with her family, and, and, the, and the parents are played by her actual parents, and she filmed in Sacramento. And this this really felt like the prequel to that. This is like how Frances Ha got to where she was. So th- there's this emerging Gerwigian sensibility, June. What, what do we, you know, how do we, she, she, she just got pr- huge profiles in both New York Times Magazine and New York Magazine. A lot of, bu- a lot of buzz around mm-hmm. Greta Gerwig. You know, are we excited for her future work? Uh, Based on this movie, totally. I mean, there was just so much that's great about it. You know, as you you said, Seth, the roundedness of every character. I mean, this is a movie that I feel like I could, if I was in college right now, I would like, I could do my thesis on the driving in Lady Bird. Like there's just, it's got depth. It's got real, it's got charm. The writing is great. The writing feels, you know, when teenage girls speak, they sound like smart teenage girls or shallow teenage girls or whatever, but they sound like the kind of people they are. Priests sound like priests, you know, hip priests or semi-open priests or whatever. But And let's just take a moment to note Lois Smith, who was, as always, she's always magnificent, but she, she plays the kind of the head nun of the Catholic school that Lady Bird attends. And She's, she doesn't have a ton of scenes. She doesn't overplay them, but she's so fantastic as just a really sensitive teacher who also, you know, is kind of a disciplinarian, but not for the sake of it. And I just, there's so much to love in this film. Yeah, I would say, yeah, in answer to Seth's question, I'm very excited about her as a writer. I think she has a little bit to learn as a director, but, you know, she's early enough in her career that she can certainly get there. I think. The naturalistic dialogue was a huge strength. But for example, I mean, this is this is something that comes between the director and the editor. But didn't you guys find the editing in this movie a little bit glib sometimes, a little bit punchy, like she'll cut right on a punchline and the scene will not quite last long enough? There were moments when I would have liked some, a scene or a, a, a relationship to develop a little bit more and not... Be, it moves very quickly yes, through it really a set of comic along. setups. It never, it never breathes. There's never any open space, really. Um, and I think that was clearly a conscious choice. And and I think that that quick sensibility is kind of bound back in. I hate to, I, I hate, I know in interviews she's talked about how people don't, don't seem to respect her because they feel like Noah Baumbach is responsible for these things and they, and they, um, you know, eliminate her role in those films. But it did feel somewhat bound back in, in its rhythm and its pace and how quick it went. For listeners who don't know, Greta Gerwig is now Noah Baumbach's living girlfriend, we right? I presume. I don't and, know. Uh, and, yeah, I think I've read a profile that said they, they live together now. And he um, and they have co-written at least two movies together, Frances Ha and Mistress America, that she starred in. I like this bit better than either of those movies. I mean, we, we talked about Noah Baumbach on this show just recently because we did the Meyerowitz stories as a, as a topic. To me, his strongest work is not when he's trying to as you say, right from the point of view of a much younger woman. And that world of young people in New York that he shows in Francis Hodge just didn't feel quite right to me. It felt like some kind of foreign gaze onto that world and not like something that sprung up from deep within it. When I see Greta Gerwig acting in a Noah Baumbach film, after knowing that he left his wife and child to go be with Greta Gerwig, there is a part of me that's watching it from Jennifer Jason Lee's point of view and just saying, isn't that nice that you have a cute girlfriend who you can make movies about youth with? Jennifer Lee as, as Laurie Metcalf and Greta Gerwig as Lady Bird. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, that may be unfair, and it doesn't take away at all from my enjoyment of this movie, but I have to say that when there's those collaborations and there's that kind of Annie Hall adoring gaze on his girlfriend, I get a little bit creeped. But that said, I think all three of us, maybe not with the intensity of A.O. Scott and David Edelstein, but with effusion and enthusiasm, would send people to Lady Bird. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, when I think I don't go to the movies as much as I used to. But when I think of the kind of, you know, it is a, a, a semi sub genre of, you know, high school, smart, witty, fun, self-motivated high school girls and, and kind of figuring things out. This is one of the better of those movies that I can remember. And I just had a really good time in the cinema. All right. Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig. Do it up. Bring it. Before we move on to our next topic, we've got some business to do, June. What do we got? Well, first we want to tell you about another great Slate show, The Gist, Slate's daily podcast hosted by Mike Pesca. It's about politics and culture and Mike's views of the world. And he recently had The New Yorker's Adam Davidson on to talk about the Republican tax plan and whether it even deserves to be called tax reform. He also had a fantastic interview with Michael Rapoport about sports and yelling he also talked with someone about how to deal with racist Dr. Seuss books and the future of the Me Too movement. So check out The Gist at slate.com slash The Gist or wherever you get your podcasts. And in Slate Plus, we're inspired by an article on the future of cohabitation and multifamily homes to grill Seth Stevenson about growing up in such an arrangement. Are you ready for that, Seth? Not at all ready. <laughs> we're going to go deep into your past. <laughs> we're we're going to me probe. on the couch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And to hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program, and it's a great way to support the magazine. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. In return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of the show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other fabulous benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to the show. Thank you, June. So, Alias Grace is a new miniseries adaptation of the 1996 Margaret Atwood novel. It's a fictionalized take on the true story of an Irish immigrant and domestic servant who's accused of the murder of her masters in mid-19th century Canada. This Netflix series is produced and written by Sarah Polly. Uh, all six of its episodes, it's a limited series, are directed by Mary Heron. It stars Sarah Gadden as the supposed murderess, Edward Holcroft as her investigating doctor, and Anna Paquin as the housekeeper and murder victim. Let's listen to a clip from Alias Grace. Well, according to my friend, there are three quilts every woman should make with her own hand before marriage. The tree of paradise, the flower basket, and the Pandora's box. Sometimes in my days as a maid, I would hang them all up to dry off and wash together in a row. They'd look like flags hung out by an army as it goes to war. What else does that make you think of, Grace? Well, since that time, I thought, why is it that women have chosen to sew such flags and lay them on the tops of beds? For they make the bed the most noticeable thing in a room. And then I've thought, it's forewarning. Because you may think a bed is a peaceful thing, sir. To you, it may mean rest and comfort and a good night's sleep. But it isn't so for everyone. There are many dangerous things that may take place in a bed. It's where we are born. That's our first peril in life. It's where women give birth, which is often their last. And it's where the act takes place between men and women, sir, that I will not mention to you, but I suppose you know what it is. Some call it love, others despair. Merely an indignity they must suffer through. All right. 
I guess I'll go around the table really quick again and ask what what both of you thought of this before we we dig in. Are you going to keep watching? How much have you seen? I did watch the whole thing. Uh, and I enjoyed it. And I, like, I'm full of praise for so much. I thought Sarah Gaddon was amazing as the lead, as the t- titular character. Pretty much everyone except maybe Edward Holcroft was really good. The the writing was fantastic. The directing was was great. But I just, I found it a little bit dull. Um, partly it's that there's a lot of, as we heard in that clip, like there's people are talking to one another. And even though images, they don't just stay, they don't just keep us inside the room where they're talking. You know, there's flashbacks and images and whatever it might be. But it was just kind of a bit like it didn't really quite grab me. There was always some part of my mind that was kind of looking away and and just not totally focused on what was actually a very beautiful thing. And so I'm a little puzzled by my reaction, but I I have to admit to it. Hmm. Okay. What about you, Seth? I agree with you, June. I I watched the entire thing as well, partly because I'm a completist. Uh, But I I felt like the... The, the mystery, the semi-mystery at the heart of it, the true crime story. Which is why she did what she did. Yes. Or, why she did, it, yeah. or did she or do what, what she did or what exactly happened. Didn't really pan out for me or really hold my attention or really work on the screen. Um, I felt like at times it kind of looked like like a middling PBS costume drama, and I, you know, I, but 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 with material that was much rawer, yes. much more explicit. Yeah. Um, I I love Sarah Pauly. I love that she took this on. I love that this is just like. Canadian women everywhere yeah. you look. Yeah. Um, is Sarah Gadden Canadian too? She is. Sarah Polly's Canadian. Margaret Atwood is Canadian. Sarah Polly previously made a movie by, you know, from a, from a short story by Alice Munro, who's Canadian yeah. woman. Yeah. Canadian women for the win, no doubt. Um, uh, but my favorite part of the, of the, of this entire show was the, the voiceover that Sarah Gadden does, which I presume I'm pretty sure is just Margaret Atwood's prose. And it was so much better for me than anything else in the show that it just made me feel like, gosh, I should have just read the book. I should read the book. Yeah, yeah. I think I think Polly hewed pretty closely to um, to even in the script to to words from Margaret Atwood. And that so you get something like that really poetic voiceover that will not mm-hmm. voiceover. She's speaking to the psychiatrist, but that kind of lyrical run that we just heard, which is not necessarily the way anyone actually speaks. But maybe in 1840 something, maybe if everybody maybe. was all the maids had such a good education. But yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that's I feel that's so similar to what I feel that there's so much about this that like I could write or I could go on and on. I could I could rapturize about the, you know, the portrayal of just the horror of a working class woman in those days. And it is like a series of horrible things happen to Grace Marks. Her life is miserable. You are. It's very, very clear how close Women who worked as servants who didn't have just actually most pretty much all women, but especially servants, how close they were to being on the streets and and just, you know, they had absolutely no no protection from anything or anybody. It's very clear. It's it's quite it's one of the most direct representations of that vulnerability that I've seen. And yet it just yeah, it just there's something missing somehow. Is it maybe I've only gotten two and a half episodes in, so I can't really judge as well. And I so far very much want to keep watching. But does maybe your hesitation, both of you, have something to do with the the, the programmatic kind of nature of the feminism? Like, does it ever strike you that 
there are, there are points being made or sort of an argument being put forth rather than a story being told? It's actually the, 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 the argument is the best part. You know, it's very subtle. There's this sense of the innate sort of brilliance of Grace. Um, you know, she's like a Scheherazade character. She stayed alive by telling stories and she's found a, a, a way of life in a sense that even though at one point she was condemned to die, she has stayed alive by telling stories. And much of the story is a way of communicating to people from a different background how hard life is for women, for servants especially. Um, and so the programmatic, as you call it, aspects of it were actually the strength. I think it was just that what should be this like fascinating murder mystery is just not that fascinating. And I, I agree, Seth, that the it's when you called it PBS elements. To me, it's very much CBC elements. Like it, there wasn't a lot of it, but even though Mary Harron has nothing to do with CBC, there were just a few moments where I thought, oh my goodness, I've seen that in a historical, you know, like maybe in Murdoch Mysteries, you know. Uh, and in fact, there was one scene where um, where Grace is traveling to the to the Kinnear household, which will, you know, be where the terrible events happen. And there's a guy who's in Murdoch Mysteries and he's this just terrible British actor. And I just thought, you shouldn't have cast that. You shouldn't have had that scene. Like, that just makes it seem like a bad CBC, like, historical drama. You mean because there's sort of like a rotating cast of Law & Order style Canadian actors that appear? Yeah, exactly. Well, Mary Harron, the director, another Canadian woman. I did not know that. Directed American Psycho. Um, yeah, and so that's that telling stories aspect you talked about, Jude. Yeah. That's something that Sarah Pauly is clearly interested in. She did that documentary about a, a mystery within her own family called mm-hmm. Stories We Tell, where, it, where it's about how people tell these stories about what happened and they change and they shift and they shift for different audiences. And so that it was interesting to see Sarah Pauly's fascination with that. In terms of like the, the, the programmatic feminism, it did, I would say, by episode six, it was clear <laughs> what what this series's point of view was on on men and men's relationships with women, certainly in the 1900s, probably, or in the 19th century, but probably now as well. There was not a single sympathetic man in the entire series, even the like seemingly nice guy farm boy hashtag not all 19th century Canadian men he he was like he is rebuffed and 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 eventually does something nasty too there's just no redeeming male characters and I, I mean the, so the 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 obvious thing to talk about in in uh pop culturally here is is, is the handmaid's tale which right. is another out of series adapted from Margaret Atwood novel uh, appeared on Hulu instead of on Netflix. Um, but again, that was another, it's two where you get women in like little caps yeah. who are, you know, being passed from man to man um, and totally controlled by, 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 by male society. And they're wanted only for domestic chores and for sex. And they have very little agency. And then, and, and these shows are about them trying to find their agency within that. Yeah. yeah. And Sarah Polly has said in interviews, I mean, she was no part of the, the handmaid's tale, but she sort of said, that you know, this is essentially for Atwood the same story that was projected forward into a dystopic future, but you know, just looking back to an, in a real case that resembles it in the past. Speaking of acting, which, as I said, Sarah Gadden, who I'd never seen before, fully amazing. Uh, but I was really pleased to see Paul Gross, and he actually wasn't that good. So he's the guy who was in Slings and Arrows. Uh, he was in True North, um, and he looks amazing. Like he's so perfect for the part. He's still 
very attractive. In fact, he's a guy, one of those men who seems to be getting more attractive as he gets older. He has this physical strength that he's kind of holding back, you know, that he, he you can tell just this guy has a lot of power. Sometimes, he, you know, he's known as a, a liberal master, uh, but, uh, you know, he's still got all the power. And he is really good, except that he really just cannot do a Scottish accent, which was surprising to me. Um, but it was so nice to see him because it's been a while and he's just, he's the kind of actor that just somehow he pleases me to see him. Two other quick things um, that I'll that I'll say about this. One is that I I loved how there's this society of earnest Canadians who who want to get her you know let off, and it kind of reminded me of like the free Adnan movement, where yes. where Doctor Simon the psychologist is their Sarah Koenig, and they and the, and they've got this this alleged criminal who they're just they are certain could not have done this crime, but it slowly becomes unclear how sympathetic this yeah. this person actually is. And the other thing is that there is this, not to spoil it for you, Dana, I'll be careful, but there's this this late episode turn that's somewhat hackneyed B-movie device that, mm-hmm. that, that sort of explains how the, how the crime could have happened or how the killer could be telling one story but doing something else. And it, it's it's um, kind of a lowest common denominator plot device in my yeah. view. And it, and it and it it set the whole thing wrong in my mind when, when that happened. I agree completely. It's something that's really hard to talk about. Um, I'm so we won't, listeners. But I'm so with you, Seth. I thought that was a big mistake. Uh, it's it kind of there's there's a really fantastic representation of ambiguity. Like there is the in some like the most superficial way of saying is like, is she lying? And we learn that that is not the question. It's about how we all tell stories, how we all, you know, represent things differently to different audiences. And that's essential. Uh, And also how we understand ourselves, how we, you know, and how a very sensitive storyteller just really picks up on what the person he or she is talking to uh, so that they can please them in a way and just give them what they want. But um, but all that sounds good. <laughs> Those sound like good qualities in a twist. Yeah, they they do. They do. <laughs> and that's and that, that's a thing with this show. That like like everything's there, but you're just not feeling yeah. it. It's a twist you've seen before in yeah. a lot of not very good TV shows and movies. Yeah. yeah. Well, now I have to keep watching just to see whether <laughs> the twist is good or bad because you say it's terrible, and then you describe it, and it sounds like stories we tell, which was an incredible movie, and which well, I think is is probably more recommendation worthy than this show. But I, yes. I think if you start this show, you will not regret it. Yeah. No. And actually, I th- and just to be clear that I think that that ambiguity and that really sort of very profound understanding of storytelling and how we you know decide what we say to other people is undermined or undercut by this device. Agree. All right. Well, we'll wrap it there. Alias Grace is on Netflix and you can come on and tell us what you think or whether you're going to finish it or whether you approve or disapprove of the mysterious twist (laughs) at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Rolling Stone, the storied rock and roll magazine, turns 50 years old this year. It was founded in the Summer of Love, right? 1967, wasn't that the Summer of Love? Um, yeah, although the first episode came out November 9th, 1967. Okay, so, so it, like it was, they were closing it during yeah, exactly. the very end of the Summer of Love. Exactly. It's a magazine that holds a hallowed place in the minds of baby boomers and culture writers alike. There's a new biography by Joe Hagen of the magazine's founder, Jan Wenner, and there is also a new two-part, four-hour documentary from HBO that digs into the early days of the magazine. Let's start off by listening to a clip from that show. We had an ad for the groupie issue that said, when we tell you about a groupie, will you really understand? And we were saying, hey, we got the goods. You want to know what's really happening? Listen to us. 
this was just complete shock to everybody, you know. <laughs> the fact that rock and roll and the culture of rock and roll had this world underneath it. It was the generation gap starting to be writ large. Jan had a particular view of what he wanted Rolling Stone to be. He was always thinking way down the road, ahead of himself, and maybe ahead of the generation to a certain extent. All right, I think that kind of insubstantial clip actually really captures the mood of the documentary. We don't have to dwell super long on this documentary, which I think we would all agree is authorized to within an inch of its life so that you don't really get a full portrait of the magazine. But um, but let's start with your histories at Rolling Stone. The reason we're doing this topic is because both of you said, I have something to say about the 50th anniversary of Rolling <laughs> oh, you're Stone. You're overselling it now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying I myself have no real relation to this magazine, certainly not as a writer, not really even as a reader um, and maybe I just missed it generationally. I'm not sure. But both of you have feelings about it. So I'm just going to go around quickly and ask about your own histories with Rolling Stone. Okay, June. So in the late 70s, when I was in college, I would get copies of Rolling Stone and actually the New Yorker too from this magazine store in, in Manchester that had American magazines. And I wasn't so much reading it for the music coverage, which there was better music coverage in Britain and like the NME and Sounds and Melody Maker. But the representation of American, I guess, youth culture, um, it was the place where that was easy to read about. I mean, so in Britain, you could learn about America from like Newsweek and Time were available. And of course, like there was coverage on TV, but that wasn't of, you know, that that was something different. And I think I, my impression, and in a way, my desire in part, not certainly wasn't a huge part of it, uh, to come to America and live in that culture was sort of sparked by the the view of, um, not exactly politics, I don't even know really what part of American culture it was, I guess, because it wasn't all that underground by that point. It but it was just, it was America somehow and, and young America. And 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 actually, and later, um, kind of when I got to a part of my life where I was feeling like, oh, music's just—I've lost track of music. I don't even know the names of bands. And I actually took a subscription for a while just to kind of try and re- get a sense back of music. And it completely failed at that because by that time it was when like Christina Aguilera was on the cover all the time, and it was just like, that's not even music. I would have any interest in. And it it kind of become very much like either going back to the past or clearly trying to represent what was popular music and just it wasn't very a lot convincing. Of scantily clad pop Absolutely. Starlets. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Baby boomer sensibility. Yeah. yeah. Mix. Um so I, I have a, a, a two part history with Rolling Stone, a double issue, if you will. When the first <laughs> part is as a reader, when I was like 12 years old in the in the mid-1980s, I subscribed to Rolling Stone because I thought it was really cool. It was Rolling Stone. And I think that was sort of the tail end of its real relevance. Maybe its real cultural relevance was all already over by then. You know, for a while, it had been like the, the white hot beating heart of the counterculture. It was like the counterculture monoculture. Every yeah. You had to go to Rolling Stone to get the counterculture. And I remember even when I was reading in the mid 80s, the, the, the ads in the back of the magazine, the personal ads felt like this bulletin board for cool, weird people to, because yeah. it was the only place you could reach those other cool, weird people. Um, but I, I, I have a sense that, you know, a 12 year old living in suburban Massachusetts <laughs> didn't actually have his thumb. I probably wasn't that, that cool. Um, and I, and I think that that cultural relevance just went f- quickly downhill from that period. And, you know, and, and now like what, 
Rolling Stone, what does that mean even? Like it, yeah. like like the the internet just killed it when suddenly these people who had these strange obsessions and these countercultural ideas could meet up on the internet and these forums and now it's like what's the Rolling Stone of now? It's it's like Reddit or it's like it's Instagram where the celebrities mm-hmm. go and they completely control their images and and they just talk to their fans directly instead of needing to talk to the Rolling Stone report. That was the 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 interesting thing I saw in that documentary at least in part 1 of that documentary Dana was was that the access yeah, that the writers yeah. and photographers had to these rock stars in the late 60s and the early 70s where you just show up at Tina Turner's house and she hasn't got home yet. You just kind of walk around or any leave of it's going in and they and nobody dresses up. Nobody has on costumes. Nobody has a stylist. They're just sitting on their couch rolling a joint and, and Danny Lee was just taking photos of them. Yeah. That does not happen now. And you yeah. can trace the way Rolling Stone's coverage of celebrities and rock stars changed over time. I, I wish I had been a part of that yeah. journalistic era. Yeah. But speaking of being a part of a journalistic, uh, uh, Rolling Stone journalistic uh, sensibility. So later, part two of my of my Rolling Stone relationship. I'm just going to keep talking. Fast forward through the adolescence, the <laughs> early you. adulthood and into the mature years of Seth Stevenson. Thank you for allowing me to take a breath. Uh, so part two was in the in the late 90s, early 2000s when I was like 25, 26 years old. I, I got to freelance for them. And this was very exciting to me. I mean, this is Blunter S. Thompson had written for this place. And I remember in, when I was 12 reading like serialized chapters from Tom Wolfe books and like this, I was like, whoa, Rolling Stone and I'm freelancing for them. And then the freelance assignment assignments turned out to be I think the first one was I want to I want to preface this by saying my editors were lovely people wonderful people caught up in in this Rolling Stone machinery with which maybe you should we should blame Jan Wenner on I, I don't blame my editors but like one of the first assignments I had was they were like we want you it was a spring break issue <laughs> and they wanted me to do captions of spring breakers on spring break in Cancun or something and I was supposed to write captions of like people in bathing suits like hot girls in bathing suits and I was like, I mean, I'm 25. It's Rolling Stone. I'm going to take the assignment. But I was did, really wasn't sure what the what the mission here was, what the aim of this was. And then also, it, then I realized that in fact they had to use pictures from the previous year's spring break in order to have time to do the layout. So it wasn't even like actual documenting spring break in that year. It was documenting like a year old spring break just to have photos of hot people in bathing suits and I was like yeah. what am I what am I doing and then the next the next assignment I got I want to read the captions you wrote I don't remember what how I solved that dilemma the ne- the next assignment I got was there was this it was for the college issue and in the college <laughs> issue of Rolling Stone there there was this kid at Northwestern who remember this is before like online porn and he what he did was catalog porn DVDs so oh that if God. you wanted a certain porn starlet using like whips and chains uh you know out outdoors like if you whatever fetish you had you could cross reference them and he would tell you which porn dvd you should buy and then there would i think there would be a link to buy the dvd that's like it's a very um wow. disjointed way of, of acquiring your porn that, that we don't recognize anymore anyway this kid was an entrepreneur and what he did was he had his northwestern undergrad classmates watching porn <laughs> dvd after porn dvd after porn dvd to catalog the fetishes wow. and the props and the actresses and so forth and paying them some pittance to do it. And anyway, I was profiling this kid and I followed, followed him out to the San Fernando Valley where he was trying to make connections in the porn world. We went on all these porn sets, which was disturbing and not at all erotic. And I still um, sometimes have flashbacks to that and they're very <laughs> disturbing. So anyway, I write up the whole thing. I'm like, wow, I wrote this story about the world of porn and I've got, you know, color from the porn sets where they're like urinating in the swimming pools and like strange <laughs> things are happening. And and I write and then my editor comes back to me and says, um, Jan killed it because uh, it was for the college issue, but you spent too much time in San Fernando Valley. So it didn't feel campusy. So he killed it. 
I, this is like, you know, weeks of my life traveling to, to, to Southern California for days and days. A photographer was out there with me taking all these shots. It was like all this effort. And like on a whim, Jan Wenner had just said, nope. Not going to do it, which I guess you know that is that is the rights of a uh, of, of an imperialistic senior. Yeah, exactly. But but that was that was my feeling. And then also, you know, increasingly, I, I had a lot of trouble getting paid by them. Oh. I just wouldn't get paid on time. Did it they give like, you a decent kill fee for that? No. Story? And they would always it would always be like they would assign the story at, at like several thousand dollars and then you would get like three hundred dollars for oh. your time for your weeks of time. And finally, I gave up and I said, enough of this. I cannot deal with this magazine anymore. It just felt very chaotic over there and at the whims of this guy. And I just refuse to keep writing for them. Good that is part two. Wow. Story. Okay. I'm glad you told both parts. Now my esteem for the magazine is plummeting even more. I mean, I have to say that watching the first two hours of this four-hour HBO documentary and also reading a lot about the, the new Joe Hagen biography of Jan Wenner, I just, I was amazed that the magazine could operate at the level of chaos that you describe. I mean, you describe it from the inside in a way that I hadn't yet seen in, in this coverage, but it seems like also at the top levels, there was tons of drugs being yes. done, yeah. which is not at all focused on in the documentary. I mean, it's so nope. dishonest. Yeah, There's one mentioned. little yep. ble- winking reference to, oh, we would puff on a joint before we wrote our stories. But apparently, according to Hagen's biography, which I think is pretty well sourced and, and, and accurate, Jan Wenner would hand out packets of cocaine as a bonus to writers. I mean, how does a magazine function like that? Can you imagine, Julia Turner? Nice job, June. Here's your blow. <laughs> that was interesting. There was a New Yorker review of the of the biography, and it talked a little bit about it. it was written by a journalist who had sort of come of journalistic age in the early aughts, saying, yeah. well, how did they do that? Right. Like when, By the time I got there, there was so little money left in journalism that you just had to be incredibly responsible and turn in clean copy and be polite and incredibly professional because you were freaked out that you weren't getting out of their assignment, you weren't going to get a job. And, you weren't going to get paid. Yeah. I, I I came in just at the, I think, the very tail end of when there was actual money in journalism. And I remember I was at New, I, I worked in Newsweek in the late 90s and they would tell these stories about people doing cocaine off the light boxes. No, like kids now, like the, like the slate interns now don't even know what a light box is. It's, <laughs> right. it's when you put the photo negative on a box that projects light through. Anyway, so, uh, but that was done by, you know, 2003, probably. Right. We missed it, guys. We missed yeah. it. We missed the party. <laughs> well, I mean, if you want to vicariously relive that party, the documentary really does celebrate it in a pretty glamorized way. I mean, you do see a little bit of Hunter S. Thompson, for example, going on assignment with cases of vodka that they would ship with him and, you know, hookers or whatever. I mean, another thing that's huge is in this documentary and in all the coverage I've seen of the biography is just the sexism embedded in that universe. I mean, even in the clip we heard, it was the groupie issue, you know, mm-hmm. that was one of their big sensational early issues and uh, it just really seems like in a way that is not acknowledged by the documentary that the whole magazine was built on this very lad mag sensibility yeah there's a in, in part two there are a few places where like a woman editor will say it, i'm sure sincerely you know people were laughing at the, when i tried to you know bring up some like rape culture story or or you know and and everyone people were laughing, but Jan he took it very seriously. He was you know or they'll or they'll be you know they'll they'll trot out one of the very few women writers uh, and editors. Or there there are a couple actually who were mentioned. And uh, Annie Leibovitz. And Annie enough. Leibovitz, yeah, gets a ton of coverage, which you know, fair enough, uh, deserves it. Um, and so yeah, but there's nobody really says, gosh, are we noticing that all these superstars, many of them are difficult men. There's a lot about Hunter Thompson's coverage of the, you know, the Pulitzer trial and it's, you know, he falls in love with the way. And it's just sort of, it's unacknowledged and yet very, very obvious, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s 
teens' attitudes that were, let's just say, pre-woke. Mm. Yeah, well, and then uh, the most recent example of that, which I don't know if this comes up later in the documentary, was the, I think it was in 2014, the scandal around the coverage of a rape case yeah. in Rolling Stone magazine, which was this sort of shockingly unsourced story that had to be retracted later. Yeah, they do talk about it. I mean, they take a lot of credit for publishing the, you know, the investigation by Steve Cole and people at the Columbia School of Journalism. Uh, and, you know, they take a lot of time to cover the uh, Michael Hastings piece about General McChrystal, which was like the, when because other than the UVA case, I was trying to think like, when was the last time I even noticed a story in Rolling Stone? And I guess it was that General McChrystal story. Uh, and so they, they definitely give that a lot of uh, coverage too. And we should probably just mention about the biography. So so Jan Wenner, agree, it was this somewhat authorized biography with this writer, Joe Hagan, where Jan Wenner said, oh, I want you to, and he did hours and hours and hours of interviews and access to all of his friends and his celebrity friends and his ex-wife and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and then Joe Hagan delivered this biography that was not what Jan Wenner had been expecting. And I haven't read it yet, but the, the, the excerpts I've read and the reviews make it sound very dishy. And I kind of am excited to read it. But Jan Wenner was not pleased. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, now there's a big feud, I guess, going on between the two of them where he's getting out in the press and trying to counteract. I mean, it almost even seems like this documentary, this is pure speculation, but like it might have been thrown together as a, as a counterpunch. This is what he hoped the book was going to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about thrown together because there, there obviously is a lot of work. I mean, it's a frustrating document because it is interesting. I found it interesting. It's it's good to see those times. And as you say, just that view of like, oh, my God, the access that people used to have, like those halcyon days of journalism. But it's so there's a lot of work put into it. But it, yeah, it's incredibly hagiographic. It's incredibly it just there's so much is just not even mentioned that we know just even without the kind of reading about Hagen's biography. Just by being present in this culture, you know things about Jan Wenner, you know things about Rolling Stone, and they're never even whispered in the, in right. the documentaries. Well, let's let's be – I haven't done the Steve Metcalf thing yet and <laughs> sort of pull historically back and try to get some sense of what this magazine does mean to the culture. I mean, we, we can pick apart that t- bad documentary. I really think it's a facile, terrible piece of work um, and, and, and talk about the, the biography that none of us have read. But what about what the magazine itself has, has meant and stood for? And, uh, and do you think that that's something worth celebrating and remembering after 50 years? Yeah. I mean, so Jack Hamilton did a really interesting review of the Joe Hagen book in Slate. And he sort of talked about, you know, as he was going through, he said, you know, you should read this issue from start to finish. Every word is fascinating. I mean, there are, and and even in the documentary, which I did find historically interesting, even while recognizing that it's, you know, phoned in to a certain extent. Um when they they do they spend they do that hack thing where they you know the voice of God which in this case I think is Jeff Daniels um, you know reads the prose out loud and there's a lot of really good prose you know it's it it's sexist it's all from a certain male per- point of view I mean I know all the issues with it but it's really you know it was great reading it was a uh, it was revolutionary in its time there were other revol- there were many revolutions that it ignored. But for what it did cover, 
it's a fantastic picture of that time. Yeah, I think for five or 10 years, it was a truly great magazine with like these amazing revealing interviews with, with stuff, like the John Lennon stuff. You know, he just poured it all out there when he talked to these interviewers and, yeah. and it really shaped how people felt about him. And and, and uh, that, that was amazing stuff. And there was great journalism, the Hunter S. Thompson stuff, however you feel about yeah. it. I mean, very entertaining writer. Um, you know, it's serializing Tom Wolfe uh, book chapters. Like as a kid, when I subscribed to Rolling Stone, that was uh, that's how I got exposed to that. That's how I started reading Tom Wolfe books because I think, you know, by the time the Internet came, it was pretty much done as 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 a truly relevant, you know, path breaking kind of thing. But I, I think at the start it was it was it was a great book. Yeah. We call we call magazines books sometimes to be cool, just to be clear to readers. We call <laughs> and they book. have fronts and backs if you yeah, want to be even cooler. It's like, what's the hot book right now? <laughs> I mean, we used to say that about talk in the late 90s. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> can, we just, can I just say like that story from Cameron Crowe about like Jan calls him in and like they fly him from wherever, yes. San Diego to San Francisco. And he, just for that, like to have an afternoon with Jan and Jan bring, gives him his his own personal copy of Slouching to yes. Bethlehem. Well, that's I meant to mention because that's think about that. Yeah. Where you, he's like, Cameron Crowe, you wrote an okay story, but it could be better. Come meet with me. Let me give you a copy of a Joan Didion book and encourage you. Yeah. And then, I, you know, I write my, my, my porn DVD cataloging story. <laughs> and it's just I hear from like four levels down, oh, Jan killed it. Why wasn't I brought in? <laughs> Where's your almost famous? Why wasn't I given a copy of a book that was close to Jan Winter's heart and maybe a pack of cocaine and told to get back out there and do better? Why? Why? Now I'm angry. Born too late, said Stevenson. <laughs> Born too late. All right. Well, if you have thoughts about the front or back of the book Rolling Stone, please share them with us at facebook.com slash culturefest. Well, we've done it. This, this moved faster than the editing in Lady Bird. We've gotten to the part of the show where we endorse already. I'm going to miss you guys. All right, June, what have you got? Okay. my I'm really embarrassed or sort of hesitant to make my recommendations, even though of late, I've not been watching as much television because I'm absolutely obsessed with YouTube craft videos. And not, and like some of the ones that I watch, like I really recommend this guy, James Luke Burke, or maybe he just goes by James Burke. And he like does like he just crafts while he's talking and he's very charming. He's an Aussie. He's got a great accent. Um, and then sometimes he'll do like tutorials. I learned how to do a few Halloween type drawings from his videos. Um, but then sometimes I watch like really like precise card making of a type that I neither would ever make or would ever send or would ever receive. But there's something so calming about watching someone make like greeting cards. And I'm just I don't know if I've just reached a certain age and like some part of my brain has exploded or something. But <laughs> I swear. So here's some people. So this is your ASMR. Story. Yeah, it really is. And so here are some of the... um YouTubers who I recommend if you like this kind of thing. So Jennifer McGuire and Kay Werner Design, they are ultimate craft, uh, ultimate greeting card makers, just amazing stuff. And then I really love this. Um, it's kind of, it's a it's a shop. Uh, it's an online store, but they also do videos that I think are really fantastic. It's called joggles.com. That is the name of the store, but also of the YouTube account. Um, and so, like, I, I don't know. I'm totally obsessed with craft videos on YouTube these days. Who oh, my isn't? God. <laughs> that is so June. I love it, especially because I very much doubt you're doing most of the craft projects, right? You're no. just letting them wash over exactly. you. Exactly. And it's, but it, like, and it's the funny thing is, it makes me want to buy a few things, you know, like it, it just triggered the like retail therapy kind of aspect of it. I just own that, like, 
thing that helps you take. I mean, well, the, it fits into your office supplies. Yes, exactly. There's, it's definitely related, but it's also like it's just not the kind of thing I would necessarily do or be capable of doing, quite honestly. But it's just so soothing. Careful, you're going to have a Jan Wenner three hundred fifty dollar a week crafting <laughs> habit that you can't that you can't shake. Yeah, that's not even a joke. Yeah. <laughs> All right, crafting videos. I didn't see that coming, but I love it. Seth, what about you? I will make two half endorsements. The first is, since we were talking about a high school, charming high school movie, um, I'm going to recommend another charming high school movie that maybe not a ton of people have seen called Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which um, with, with um, Michael Sarah and Kat Dennings. Cat Denning or Cat Dennings? Dennings. I'm like Liam Neeson's. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, it's it's really sweet and also um, similarly very generous to its characters. Every character has redeeming qualities. It's it's a it's, it bounces along. It's got a great soundtrack. It's it's not a, uh, a a film of tremendous depth, but I just whenever it's on, I find I watch it, and so I'm going to recommend it. And then the other thing I'm going to recommend is another semi-guilty pleasure, which which is in uh, Lady Bird, which is the Dave Matthews Band song, oh. Crash Into Me, which which plays which has a, plays a role in the plot where at a certain point it comes on the radio and the bad boyfriend says, what a lame song, this song's so lame. And that is the moment that, or a moment where Lady Bird says, no. At first she's like, oh yeah, but then she's like, no, I like this song. Uh, and she stands up for herself and she is not afraid to say she likes Dave Matthews Band and it's a pivotal moment for the character. And I will say I also, despite many very <laughs> lame connotations uh, with the Dave Matthews Band, and I'm not going to recommend the band as a whole or its work as a whole, it's canon, but I will say I like that song. I like Crash Into Me. That's actually one of the qualities of the character Lady Bird that we didn't mention in our segment that I love, which is that she's completely self-confident to a fault. Yes. Like she's yes. almost obnoxious in the degree to which she believes in her own taste and her own dreams and her own vision. She runs for student office every year. Knowing yeah. she won't win, yes. not wanting to win. Um, she doesn't care about cool, which is so rare, like for actual high schoolers and for actual you know, and for actual high schoolers and for representations of high schoolers in the movies and it's it's lovely it's a lovely part of ladybird I have one more little note on on Seth's endorsement, which is that Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist mainly sticks with me because of one of the side characters played by Ari Grainer, the best friend. Yes, she's terrific in it. So good. And I've been looking for that actress. You see her once in a while and things. She's she's kind of an Angie Dickinson lookalike, and she has just this great brash manner, and I really hope she gets more roles. I also find her great in everything she does. She was on a Showtime show, which I'm pretty sure only had one season, which actually is set in the world of roadies. Um, It was directed by Cameron Crowe. Uh, created by him, and it just wasn't very good, but she was kind of good in it. Yeah, yeah. She needs to get more work. Ari Grainer. Okay, my endorsement this week is Highbrow. Now I'm embarrassed that I went Highbrow when you guys had such fun, jolly pop culture recommendations, but this is actually... In, in a way, popular culture, because I think <laughs> this is something that brings a difficult text to a lot of new readers. There's a new translation of the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. It's the first translation by a woman in, his, in the history of the oh book. Uh, her name's Emily Wilson, and she's a professor at Penn. I hope we get to have her on the show and talk about translating Homer, because that just seems like an incredible task that she undertook. But to give you an idea of the freshness of this translation, I'm just going to read the very famous opening to the Odyssey, um, which if you've read in translation, I think you know usually starts with the first line is something like, 
oh, muse, tell me about the man of many ways or something like that. Um, and it's this, this sort of difficult word to translate, the word that is translated often as the man of many ways, polytropos, which means a person of many tropes or right? a person <laughs> of many turns. So here's the, here's the beginning of Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. Tell me about a complicated man. Muse, tell me how he wandered and was lost when he had wrecked the holy town of Troy and where he went and who he met, the pain he suffered in storms at sea, and how he worked to save his life and bring his men back home. He failed to keep them safe. Poor fools. They ate the sun god's cattle, and the god kept them from home. Now, goddess, child of Zeus, tell the old story for our modern times. Find the beginning. I just think that's such a, yeah. a, a grabby beginning to, to such a familiar poem. And something about kicking off with this tell me about a complicated man really yeah. does bring it into modern times. Anyway, I'm only a, a book and a half or so into this massive tome, but uh, it's really fresh and wonderful reading so far. And I didn't think that I needed to reread Homer's Odyssey right <laughs> now, but it turns out we all do. <laughs> I mean, the Odyssey is a pretty good cultural ar- artifact. But again, I'm going to say Crash Into Me by Dave Matthews Benz. <laughs> think about it. I'm just going to say, make some greeting cards with YouTube. (laughs) You'll find links to some of the things we talked about, be they letterpress kits or uh, copies of Homer's Odyssey, on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. The Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network, and you can find a whole roster of wonderful shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For June Thomas and Seth Stevenson, I'm Dana Stevens, and we'll see you next week. 